You know, nothing says podcast like t-shirt. And I got a brand new t-shirt on of the Bill Sang Podcast. And as you can see, as it says Bill Sang Podcast on the top, has our great country right underneath it, United States of America. And then beneath what it has is it says God, Family, Country. And so this is available at WilliamHSang.com for anybody that would be interested in purchasing it. Please do so to support this program so we can continue doing quality programs on the Bill Sang Podcast. And we would love to have your support as well. Uh, Today we're talking about, in my opinion, a really fun topic because I like to challenge the norms from time to time and really get people to think about things. And I know that uh, sometimes view these sorts of topics as controversial. This one, probably less so. This is probably one you might not have put a whole lot of thought into, except for not, uh, maybe not consciously, but maybe subconsciously you have. And we're going to be talking about the Bible today. But the first thing I want to talk about, so we've talked, not necessarily myself, but you've probably thought about what your favorite book in the Bible is. And I would say mine's probably the Gospel of John. Genesis is definitely up there. And so it's it's more than likely one of those. Romans also is top five for sure. Um Something you probably don't think a whole lot about. You probably think it's heretical or blasphemous to go down these lines. What is your least favorite book in the Bible? Your least favorite book in the Bible. Can you even admit that? Can you even confess that? Which book of the Bible is your least favorite? I'm going to tell you mine in just one moment. Before I do, the reason why I like to do podcasts that revolve around God's Word, on theological topics, on the proof of God, proof of Jesus, and hopefully many more podcasts along those lines, if not just reiterating them from different angles, is because my goal in life is to help people to read, to understand, to know, to apply, and love God's Word. To help people to read, understand, know, apply, and love God's Word. That really is my life's goal. And I think that in order to do that, we have to have some transparency here. Some books in the Bible are not as easy of reads as others. And for me, my least favorite book in the Bible is First Chronicles. I know that amongst uh, some of the more more challenging books, some people might not like cite a whole book. Like certain parts of Genesis have lots of genealogical records. The Book of Job is a really tough read. Um, maybe you don't like books like say James, which to some people sounds more legalistic, more works based. Um, but for and and by the way, I know a lot of people would say maybe books like. Leviticus or Numbers are tough reads for them, and I totally get as to why. Again, lots of genealogies, lots of details as far as building the tabernacle and these other things, sacrifices and so forth that lots of times we don't think are very relevant for today. Funny thing is, I actually did a sermon series on the book of Leviticus. I've heard even pastors say, I don't know why Leviticus is in the Bible to begin with. Well, it's in the Bible because when you read through Leviticus, 
you very clearly see, if you understand the New Testament, you clearly see the symbolism of Jesus's sacrifice inside of the book of Leviticus and lots of other things that are brought out inside of the New Testament are, are spoken about with the symbols provided in the book of Levit Leviticus. And when I say symbols, these are rituals, these are sacrifices, and you're able, these, these are laws. And as a result, you're able to see Christ shining through those, which is why I've never wrote, I, I actually love the book of Leviticus. I think it's an amazing book. But again, the book I struggle with the most is First Chronicles. And I decided to do something. You know, I was wrestling with it. I was like, I, I was finishing up, I believe it was the book of John. I was reading the book of John, uh, the Gospel of John, that is. And I was trying to determine what book should I read after this. I was thinking about Acts. I was thinking about another New Testament book. And I tried to think, what books don't I read a whole lot inside of the Bible? My mind was kind of going through. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if it was God or something else, but I, I was thinking First Chronicles. I don't like First Chronicles. I don't want to read First Chronicles. It's not going to be First Chronicles. But you know what I'm reading right now? First Chronicles. And what was my hesitation in reading First Chronicles? Well, if you're familiar with First Chronicles, it is about ten chapters. The first ten chapters, at least, are genealogy. <laughs> okay? And so you start literally with Adam, and then you trace his lineage all through the ages, all the way up to the point that it picks up with in the, the historical part, of First Chronicles, of course, the genealogy is history as well. But that's a lot of begats inside of First Chronicles' first ten chapters. <clears throat> well, I decided to gut it up, and dive into it, and something incredible happened. As I was reading First Chronicles, the first ten chapters, uh, within the first couple of chapters, I, I was just kind of like okay, I've got to get through this. I just got to drudge it out and make it to the story portion where it talks about the story of King David, which is an awesome story. One of my favorite parts of the Bible is reading about King David and just the, the battles that he had, the trials that he had, the people that he encountered. David has an incredible story. I was like, just get through these first 10 chapters so he can make it to the good stuff. And all of a sudden it dawned on me inside of First Chronicles, it wasn't purely genealogy, but every now and then it would get interrupted with little narratives, little tidbits in there about certain individuals. And I was amazed by this. It was like, wait a second. I don't know that these people are written about anywhere else in the Bible, and yet it is telling me about these lesser-known people right now. And that is absolutely incredible. It would talk about people who had shortcomings. It would talk about people that had great achievements. It just gave you details about people that you never would have even guessed existed inside of the Bible. And I found it very fascinating. As I was going through the 12 tribes of Israel, I remember making it to, I think it was Naphtali, 
where all these other tribes of Israel, like it gave this long genealogical record. And Naphtali like gave like his first three sons and then it just kaput, nothing. Doesn't talk about it at all after that. I'm like, whoa. And mind you, maybe this is showing my biblical ignorance here, but I was like, I, I didn't, did something happen with Naphtali? <laughs> what happened with Naphtali? Uh, again, I, I think I might be getting it. I might be butchering his name even. Um, I don't have the 12 tribes of Israel memorized by heart per se. I do pretty good with it, but I don't have them memorized by heart necessarily. But I just remember there was one tribe of Israel that was like, what on earth happened to them? And it's really got my mind wondering as to why this genealogy of his was so short. So, what it kind of inspired me to do, reading these genealogies, <clears throat> is it inspired me to want to look more into the genealogical records. Now, I don't have just a depth of resources to be able to do this on the fly. I, I wish I did, and plus I do have the internet. I could try to research them on the internet. That's a little more difficult than we might think. Google is not a friend to Bible scholars, except for when you're looking up a Bible verse or something. Sometimes it can come in handy. Lots of times it, it kind of throws a curveball at you. Like when I tried to, I can't remember why, but I tried to look up, I think I heard contrary, contradictory information regarding Goliath's height, and I Googled it, how tall was Goliath, and it brought up a height like seven feet tall or something like that, that was actually way off based on what the Bible actually says, and, uh, how that is ultimately interpreted. And um, after that, I was like, my goodness, it is really hard to trust a Google search on... It's very hard to trust a Google search regarding different biblical facts and information because it tries to skew them quite a bit. It makes it sound like the Bible is less true than what it really is. And uh, it's very frustrating because they really do a lot of twisting in there in order to make that happen. And actually had me convinced for a while that, oh wow, Goliath really wasn't um, 10 feet tall. He was really like 6 foot 8 or, some, or 7 feet tall or something like that. And uh, that was very frustrating. But what has really inspired me to do is to start searching the genealogical records, and uh, it made me pick up a book that actually I love. It's been a long time since I read it. I normally don't read books more than once, but this one I have made an exception to. I started reading again. It's called After the Flood. After the Flood, and I believe the author, yes, is Bill Cooper, and uh, it is an excellent book for anybody that wants to study the genealogical records inside the Bible and what they've done in After the Flood. So they start with the premise that the flood in the book of Genesis really happened, okay? Not all Bible scholars do. Some of them reduce it to a local flood. Some of them say that it was just legendary or mythological or whatever. So he starts with the idea that the genealogical records are true inside of the book of Genesis. And so he approaches the booklet as uh, from that angle. And what he has actually done is he's actually found genealogical records that correspond with the records inside of the Bible. And he said that, I, I can't remember what ratio he said he'd be happy with to begin with. I think he said if he could find like, you know, 10% of the records inside of the Bible, find collaborative information records that confirm the existence of just 10% of people inside the biblical record, that he'd be happy. Particularly inside the Table of Nations, I believe that is Genesis 10. I think Genesis 10. And um, he said that as he got researching it, it went from 10% to 15% to 25% to 50%. 
to 75%. I think that he said he got like all the way up to like 95% accuracy in the biblical record. And that wasn't because it ended at 95%. It's because he was able to collaborate 95% and he was still doing research. And so he probably confirmed just about every single name inside of the book of Genesis table of nations portion of the Bible. And it'd be really remarkable to be able to find the story of all these people. And there's a lot of names inside the genealogies. And uh, after the flood, just to give it a little bit of a shout out to it, it's, it's an older book now. Um, but um, after the flood talks specifically about the bloodline of Japheth. And if you're unfamiliar, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth, well, first, Shem would be where you get the word Semitic from, um, meaning like the Jew, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, the Shemites, so to speak, so people of that region. Uh, Ham would be the Hamites, of course, and that would include, oftentimes I think they include people that moved to Africa, the Egyptians. And I don't remember, maybe some people Middle Eastern, a Middle Eastern descent. Um, not entirely certain on that. But then Japheth is oftentimes credited for being the father of the European nations. And uh, so what they do is they trace Japheth's bloodline throughout history and through through actual historical records, through legends, through stories. <clears throat> and they very accurately trace the biblical record through the line of Japheth. And it is an absolutely incredible book. Uh, it does talk about the biblical perspective on dinosaurs talks about a biblical perspective on history. It even does some apologetical work in terms of the existence of God. So it is very, very remarkable. I highly recommend it. One of the first books that I read when I started studying the the creation and evolution debate. In fact, I didn't fully even understand it at that point because I still thought that creationism and intelligent design were the same things. They are not. Uh, a somebody who believes in intelligent design can be a creationist, but a person who is a creationist is not necessarily, I don't know, I'm probably getting this wrong exactly, but a creationism is very specific. Intelligent design is more broad. So um, after the flood, excellent book. Check it out. It's by Bill Cooper. You can probably find it on amazon.com, I'm guessing, if not. And then you can probably find it somewhere. Uh, just type in Bill Cooper and after the flood on a Google search and see what comes up. Hopefully they give you better results than if you were to type in the historical reality of Jesus Christ in a Google search. Uh, hopefully it gives you real results for this one. So one of the reasons why books like this, why books like, for, I don't think the first Chronicles is my least favorite book in the Bible anymore. Um, reason why books like first Chronicles are important to me is because it boils down to a biblical worldview, what that means. And a biblical worldview finds its foundations in, through the lens that the Bible is correct on any given issue. Now, yes, again, it's limited by technology. It's limited by historic context because our context is far removed from the biblical context. But it still is predicated on the idea that any situation that I face today can be resolved and I can, I can find God's way to approach any given situation 
through the word of God because God's word is good for all situations. And so even though it might not have the exact same situation, it has situations that are contextually similar to the ones that we exist in today. And so we can draw wisdom from God's word. And as a result of that, that you can become well-grounded, well-rooted in faith, and you can have a strong and firm grasp on what the Bible is actually telling us. Now, this past week at church, I happened to reference Jeremiah Wright. He was Barack Obama's pastor at Trinity United Church of Christ, I believe it was, in Chicago, Chicago, Illinois. And he interprets the Bible through a lens of theology known as liberation theology. It is a liberal strain of theology. And what I tell people is anytime that a strain of theology is interpretive, then it is, it's, it's wrong. It's a liberal strain of theology and we ought to reject it because it's per- approaching it from, it, it's making it seem as though that, well, I'm a white person, so I'm going to approach it from this perspective. You're a black person, so you're going to pr- approach it from this perspective. You're a woman, so you're going to approach it from this perspective. You are a Jew, so you're going to approach it from this perspective. And you have all these different perspectives. That's not to say that who we are doesn't affect how we read what the Bible or any given thing has to say. On the same token, we can all read and understand what the Bible says and be on the same page with it if we refuse to interpret it through our lenses, but instead read it for what it says and understand and believe it for what it says. Not not saying that, okay, well, because I am a straight white male, this is how I'm going to interpret the Bible. And it's going to be different from the way that Somebody who is not a straight white male reads and interprets the Bible. It should be read the same way by all people, understanding it not through what we want it to say, understanding it through what God wants it to say, understanding what God intended it to say. And uh, this past week, my, my cousin sent me a message on Facebook regarding a campaign called He Gets Us. Okay, it's the He Gets Us campaign. And he asked me what my opinions were on it. And so I took a moment, I looked up the He Gets Us campaign, and I watched an ad or two from it. And it's funny because it had very much a similar feel to that of The Chosen, in that it is trying to relate to the audience, to the viewer, the person listening to the message message that it is conveying. But there's just something about it that just wasn't quite right. And the way that the first one kind of presented the message was that a long time ago that there was this man who was a rebel and he recruited people, I can't remember, basically street people to join him as his disciples to change the world. And they showed these images of gang members, these images of criminals, these, uh, they showed all sorts of images of people on the street, and they kind of glorified that lifestyle. Now, I'm not trying to demean people in those situations, but some of the people I showed were really bad people. And what they tried to make it look like is that, what, what they whether they tried this or not, it's how it looked, they made it look like that Jesus is just like these people. When the truth is that, so... Let me, let me take it this direction. The Chosen did a similar tactic. 
it presented the disciples. And it showed how you might be able to relate to a situation like, say, Peter. Or you might be able to relate to a situation like Andrew, or John, or James, or Matthew, or Thomas, or uh, or other James, <laughs> um, or Mary, or there, there are a couple other women characters and I don't remember all their names. Um, but Eden, I believe is Peter's wife in that one, they show you their perspectives on life and you might be able to relate to one of those characters. And then they have this just transcendent character walk onto the set, Jesus. And his character is nothing like, in, in one way he's, he's just like them, but in another way he's nothing like them. And he has called them out of their lifestyle, regardless of what it was, to follow him so that he can transform their lives so they could be transformative agents for the gospel's sake as well. Well, it was kind of making it seem like, and I had a good response to my cousin. I wish I had it written up and so I could just read to you my thoughts on it. But it really felt like that instead, what this video series was doing was not evangelizing. It was kind of trying to guilt Christians today into feeling bad about not giving in to more causes of social justice. In fact, when I looked up about what the goal of this campaign was, it mentioned about how people like Jesus, but they don't like Christians. They don't like his followers. But that's because my opinion, and by the way, my opinion is proven to be 100% right all the time, but that's just my opinion. My opinion is that you can make, because Jesus walked the earth, he seated at the right hand of God, that we don't physically see him right now. We don't audibly hear his teachings right now. We can make Jesus to be whoever we want him to be. And that's why people like Jesus, because they can make him into whatever they want him to be. But Jesus' intentions were to put the Holy Spirit inside of us, inside of those who believe in him, to carry on his ministry on earth. So his ministry never ended. It is carried on through the church. And the Holy Spirit brings conviction to people. Why does the world not like Christians? Because of the conviction that Christians bring upon the world. They say it's because of hypocrisy and so forth. Yes, there is hypocrisy and so forth. We are humans. We are not Jesus. And therefore, we do fall short. But I think that to condemn Christians over that is more of a reflection on culture and the guilt shared inside the culture than what it is on the church as a whole. Again, I do happen to want to refresh you that only 6% of the church, by the way, has a biblical worldview. So who's being a hypocrite and who is uh, just being a poser? I would say that probably majority of the church is just being a poser. Anyway, the this ad campaign kind of ran with this idea that um, it ran with the idea that the world likes Jesus but not Christians and then it also wanted my, my feel on it all was that it was trying to woo Christian conservatives over to a more social justice framework of Christianity and I feel that's very deceptive because we are reading the screw tape letters this weekend as well. And this week, it happened to talk about how 
the devil, how screw tape in this instance, does not want Christians to focus on their faith and bring their faith into politics, but rather to use their faith to accomplish some sort of an agenda. And that agenda could be something as simple as social justice. And social justice is kind of a silly concept. It's kind of a childish concept. The fact that everybody would be equally accepted across you know, our, our an entire society, that's a wonderful idea, a wonderful thought. But to say that we need to lift up people that don't make as much money so they can make as much money as people that do make more money and bring down the people who make more money so they can be an equal level as everybody else, it's not real justice per se. And that's a much deeper conversation. I hope I didn't make that sound the wrong way. Regardless, it's a very childish concept that's based on envy. It's based on greed. It's based on um, class warfare. And that brings me to another point that C.S. Lewis made in this regard, that it's actually Marxist. It's getting the upper class to fight against the lower class, the lower class to fight against the upper class. So there's this constant tension throughout our culture. And so the He Gets Us campaign, I caution people on that. I'm not 100%, I've not 100% made up my mind as far as what I think about it. I resonated with some of the sentiments that it did have. But on the same token, it seemed like something wasn't quite right, that there was something that they were leaving out of the whole campaign, and it bothered me. And it really seemed like they was really trying to confuse and deceive Christians and to build up and to puff up those who were not believers to say that, yeah, you Christians need to change to be more like us. And uh, it's very disturbing because that's not what Jesus wants us to do. He does not want us to be like the world. He wants us to be as his followers and thus holy and different from the people that are around us. So please continue to support this program, the Bill Sang Podcast. I appreciate you being able to join me for today's episode. Remember, go to the WilliamHSang.com and buy a Bill Sang Podcast shirt. Um, like, share, and subscribe to this episode and to the uh, to the Sang Network on Rumble and to William Sang on YouTube. Check us out on Buzzsprout and also iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the different platforms you can ha- you can listen to podcasts on. In fact, podcasts are a great way the the audio version is a great way to listen to this because you don't use as much data. So I highly encourage you to listen to us on those platforms as an alternative to watching us. Video-wise, I, I absolutely love listening to stuff as I'm just going about uh, without taking up a whole lot of data, just listening. Um, so again, this is the Bill Sang Podcast. My name is Bill Sang. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. <laughs>